Hi everybody, producer Al here and it's time for another re-release of our series TSFP Presents Classic Teams. This time it's quite simply one of the best teams in the history of football. It's Cruyff's dream team at Barca from the late 80s through to the early 90s, the winners of Barcelona's first ever European Cup. Remember, for full access to our entire archive of TSFP Presents, plus Rincon Cultural, my paper reviews, Q&A pods, bonus pods, Zoom calls, all that sort of thing, join us at patreon.com forward slash TSFP. Hello patrons and welcome to another edition of TSFP Presents Classic Teams. In our previous episode we discussed Super Depor and Euro Depor who excited and enthralled us uh, at the uh, start of the current century and the uh, end of the uh, previous one. Uh, this episode we're going back in time once more to talk about Barcelona's dream team, the incredible side that was assembled by Johan Cruyff at the end of the 1980s and towards the mid of the 1990s that swept all before them, certainly domestically with uh, four consecutive uh, league titles at the start of the 1990s. I think first things first, good name, isn't it? What, dream team? It's a good name. If you're or be TSFP a... presents classic teams. That's less, that's, that's more debatable. But yeah. if you're going to be considered a legendary team, I think it's important <laughs> to have a catchy name and dream team. Yeah. Of course, they weren't the original dream team. Well, that was that was the whole point, wasn't it? That this is this is on the basis of the US basketball team at the 1992 Olympics, which of course was in Barcelona, being called the dream team because of them being able to take professional players for the first time. So a team with Larry Bird and Michael Jordan and Magic Johnson and, and so on. And, and so that created this idea that a perfect team would be called that. Of course, 92 is the year that Barcelona win the European Cup. Um, it's that, that sense that, that the kind of the two things went together because I think, with time maybe we've forgotten although if you go to Barcelona and ask people um, they certainly haven't but the 1992 Olympic Games in the city were absolutely enormous in, in kind of social and, and cultural terms as well obviously as, as economic ones Sid of course has written a book called Fear and Loathing in La Liga I don't know if you've read it we all certainly haven't and it's excellent I haven't is it any? <laughs> yes there is obviously a chapter on Barcelona's dream team in it so yeah. you have researched this you didn't need to bring any notes to no not really I did note down a couple of things because there were a couple of details that I wanted to remember the the, the kind of the the statistical significance of it and I just want to okay. very very briefly throw this in there because obviously you talk about a team that wins a European Cup reaches another European Cup final and loses it in Athens obviously in 94 and wins four leagues in a row but to kind of give a sense of the context of that well and a Copa del Rey and a Cup Winners Cup yes yeah, yes. And, that, and that in a way is what starts it because the Cup Winners Cup is, is the first title that Cruyff mm. wins in his first season the Copa del Rey which they win in 1990 is actually the one that keeps Cruyff in a job mm. and without that maybe none of this happens they beat Real Madrid yes. in, the, in the final 2-0 um, but then the four league titles in a row and bear in mind this is a team that had had never uh, won two in a row before this is a team that had only won two league titles in the previous 31 years and then wins four in a row and also I think you can talk about it as a cultural change and, and that that kind of has its legacy now and we look at Barcelona now as a continuation of Cruyffist ideals now obviously it's not a completely straight line and there are times when they've broken away from it and come back to it and so on but in terms of the transformation of the club so you can talk about a pre-Cruyff and a post-Cruyff era at Barcelona before 1990 10 league titles and no European Cups since 1990 15 league titles and 4 European Cups and so that change and when I say before 1990 I mean in their entire history mm-hmm. so the, 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 the impact that it had even beyond the team itself is, is gigantic and it became of course the dream team this kind of image of perfection that made it impossible for anyone else to live up to, live up to it 
until Pep Guardiola turned, lo- turned and up. So Real Madrid had won the previous five league titles before those four in a row that you mentioned. And since then, no team has won four in a row. Mm. Yeah, Pep's Barca won three, didn't they? But they mm. are the last team to win four league titles in a row. Yeah, yeah. That, that that Real Madrid team, of course, the Quinta del Buitre, which is uh, which is a classic team, which is a classic team, which might be saved for for another episode. Uh, you never know. Um, we should perhaps clarify for some listeners who don't necessarily know exactly who we're talking about or um, or some of the players that were involved uh, in this Barcelona dream team. Uh, we're classifying it as basically Johan Cruyff's time in charge as, as mm-hmm. manager so he, he comes in uh, in 19, 1988 the same day that Espanyol were in the uh, in the UEFA Cup final Ah, there we go. Talk about taking the headlines off them. <laughs> yes. And he, and he leaves in 1996. Six, six, when he yeah. was sacked. When he was sacked. Um, during that time, though, as you said, uh, they won a, a number of trophies. And some of the headline players, I guess, involved mm. uh, would be uh, Ronald Koeman, Romario, uh, Pep Guardiola, Michael Laudrup, um, Stoichkov, Stoichkov, Bakero, Begedi Stein. And the funny thing, of course, some of those foreigners that you mentioned, because of the rules at the time, the three foreigner rule, mm. if you had more than three, it caused you some problems, especially if the, the players you're talking about are as good as, as those four that, that you just mentioned. In Stoichkov did not like it when Romario turned up, although it turned out they ended up being pretty much best mates. It's curious, actually, Romario, and it's one of the things I, I wrote about in the book, that Romario's kind of emotional impact on this team is greater than it really was, if you see what I mean, because he was so extraordinary for a year. Hmm. Um, because him and Stoichkov... The 93-94 season. Yeah, and then and then leading a little bit into the season after the World Cup. But the World Cup in 94, which of course Brazil won and Romario was part of that and Stoichkov was top scorer, is kind of the, a part of what starts to kind of break away the foundations a little bit of this team um, but those two were so extraordinary for kind of a season and a half that it, they've almost been as a partnership projected on to being the dream team forward line mm. but Romario for example only wins one league title mm. and doesn't win the European Cup and so it's curious but I think there's an emotional connection to him because he was so ludicrously talented that makes him feel even bigger than perhaps he really was mm. Uh, absolutely, you mentioned he, he wasn't necessarily the fulcrum of this uh, dream team, but when you think about them and you think about their forward line, Romario is the first. Not one least because, of course, he was in the team that beat Real Madrid five 0 He was in that team that absolutely destroyed Manchester United in the in the Champions League, and certainly from a from a British perspective, I think that's kind of one of the you know when people look back on that Barcelona team, they sort of remember it as being that team, mm. whereas actually that was sort of the beginning of the end. Mm. Um, other players to perhaps have a quick mention about uh, Ronald Koeman who was very much a, a, a stalwart of this team and a goal scorer of course still of course the highest scoring uh, defender in La Liga history I actually didn't Sergio know that. Ramos is now was it 10 goals behind I think Koeman got 67 and Ramos has got 57 something like uh, that he got to double figures in goals in every season he played at Barcelona it's not bad, is quite it? extraordinary he was I mean, a they... top goal scorer in the Champions League in 1994 <laughs> I didn't, I didn't <laughs> when they got to the final he that scored 8 goals crazy and of course he scores the, the goal in the final yeah. and he came as a, as a kind of a deep line midfielder who became one of the free centre backs when they played 3 at the back uh, well I say free centre backs it, it was really free defenders they weren't even mm. centre-backs and and one of the things that obviously makes this dream team different isn't just all, the, all of the titles that we've talked about but it's the way they play the way they seem to shift um, can I use a slightly poncy sounding phrase but the shift the paradigm change the the, the the mindset of how it is you can play and I remember having this conversation with Chiqui Bagidi Stein once and sort of saying you know so and he, he said you know you buy Ronald Koeman and you go make him a centre-back only pray for it at the back stick an extra man up front he said every time there was a doubt what do we do Cruyff went more attacking. 
every time, more attacking, more, more players up front, more, more going for it. And he said, and we thought he was completely mad. And, and I remember saying to him, well, you know, so well, what do you mean? He said, well, we, we thought, well, this style is all well and good for, for the Dutch league, but you can't come here and do this in Spain, and you certainly can't do it in the Champions League when you come up against a strong English team or a German team. But Cruyff kept on kind of doubling down on this. I said, well, so how did he convince you? And he said, well, because it's Johan Cruyff. And he just had this kind of, you know, obviously everything he'd been as a player, everything he'd symbolised, everything he represented, the power of his own convictions, which at times was could be overbearing and some of the players you know, didn't always get on brilliantly with him. But there was definitely something different about Cruyff that, that changed the way people, not just the way that people played the game, but the way that people thought about it. And that is illustrated by the fact, something that's been discussed a lot recently, for example, Jonathan Wilson wrote a book about it, the Barcelona legacy. When you run through that list of names of players, the, the number of them who have gone on to be coaches mm. in themselves, influenced by by Cruyff as a kind of inspirational figure. Yeah, and obviously that that has a kind of a that expands then into people like Van Gaal, into Bobby Robson, into, mm. even even to Jose Mourinho. But but that that idea that somehow when you work with Cruyff, you rethink. Uh, and you you kind of reconceptualise the way that the game should be played. That's not necessarily to say it makes you absolutely right. And Cruyff, for example, is not the same as Guardiola. I mean, Guardiola is very, very different in well, his approach. Well, some of it's a reaction to Cruyff as well as being inspired yes, by him, I guess. I think that's true. Romario didn't go on to be a coach. No. Uh, Went on he, to be a politician. He's yeah. an MP. Which is completely, is. Yeah. Which is completely baffling as well, because yeah. he... he he wasn't really what you anticipated. <laughs> I loved his comment where, where not so long ago, about four or five years ago, his son was uh, had signed up for a Brazilian club. I must confess, I can't remember which one it was. And Romario said, well, I'll go to watch his games, but I don't think I'll be going to his training sessions. After all, I never even went to my own. <laughs> but he was just so incredibly talented that it sort of didn't matter. And of course, very famous for, for turning Rafael Alcorta inside out with what became known as the Collar de Vaca, that, that swish across the floor. The and cow's then, tail. Oh, brilliant. Mm. Just brilliant. Uh, we'll talk about a couple more of the important members of the team in, in just a second. But it's important perhaps to pick up on something you were, you were touching upon there. The emotional significance of this team, not just necessarily in terms of the titles won, but in the way that it was won and the way that they played and the way that they sort of stamped and created an identity of, 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 of football for Barcelona, which is very much the current way of doing things. Yeah, and, and at the very least it's the... It, even when it's not necessarily the current way of doing things, it becomes the ideal to which everyone must aspire. Yes. So, so, and, and, and at times, of course, that's a that's a problem for managers because it becomes a sort of Damocles hanging up, hanging over them that they can't ever really um, match up to this. And you know, if you if you want a, a great case study in how difficult it can be, just look at what happened to Bobby Robson when he had to follow Cruyff. It was almost impossible. Uh, I think it was difficult then for Van Gaal, whose whose team actually did really quite well admittedly less well in Europe and, and, and weren't quite as exciting but you know won, won the league title in the first two seasons uh, and it just kind of wasn't enough and as I say it wasn't really enough until Guardiola came along and of course Guardiola a declared Cruyffist the midfielder from the middle of the Cruyff team um, at a time when actually you know no one really knew very much about this skinny kid who came up through the youth system and it's Cruyff who says right this is the guy I want in there because he could see that the understanding of the game even if, as I say, Guardiola's broken a lot of the things that Cruyff did and gone away from a lot of the things that Cruyff did, and not least he's a much harder worker in terms of the detail and the and the kind of repetition of, of certain things than, than, than Cruyff was, but very definitely a Cruyffist. Hmm. You mentioned Guardiola then, who was uh, very much uh, a big part of this, of this dream team, made his 
debut for Barcelona, age 19, mm. against uh, Cadiz in December 1990. Went on to play more than 380 games over an 11-year period. He is one of the members of the Dream Team that you will have actually seen play quite a lot. Mm. Not when he was in the Dream Team, but subsequently, obviously. Yeah. Here's a question. Did you ever, when you watch him play, was he someone who you thought he will go on and be a coach, he yeah. could be a leader? Yeah, and not just because of the way that he played, but actually because of the way he talked mm. even then, that you, you, you could see that there was a conviction about him. You could see that there was a sense that he wanted to not just do things this way but wanted others to do things this way that if you watch the way that he played he was the kind of if you like the the, the what's the best phrase for this I suppose the metronome so he was a bit like Xavi would become later but from a slightly different deeper position it was pass 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 make sure the pass goes to the right person at the right kind of pace he would change not just the direction of the play but the speed of the play um, and, and in that sense I, I think there was a, a very clear um, idea very very early with Guardiola that this guy thinks about the game differently to others I mean bear in mind that in the president presidential elections which I think it's the ones that bring Laporta in as president Guardiola had been on the ticket with a guy called Bassat and he was going to be the sporting director at Barcelona this is way before he ever became the manager uh, he was going to be the sporting director with his, his coach was going to be Juan Malillo who of course is now gone is now coaching Andres Iniesta in Japan um, and so there was a sense even then that this is a guy who thinks about things differently maybe won't be a coach but will play some sort of role and that role will be partly educational and I think we saw this recently didn't he he admitted recently that one day he'll go back to Barcelona but not to coach a team to run the youth system hmm. or at least that was that's his aspiration whether they'll let him is another issue well they've got to let him haven't they I mean surely yeah although the relationship <laughs> between Guardiola and this current board isn't mm. isn't that great yes but perhaps sometime in the future yes. the, uh, the, the the board in the future might let the most successful manager in the history of Barcelona come back and coach yes. the youth team. He did become the most successful manager after Cruyff because Cruyff had had set the bar for uh, for Guardiola to follow. Uh, Guardiola said of the of the dream team that they were pioneers and we cannot compete with that no matter how many trophies we win. Well, you wonder if Guardiola may well be the next generation's Cruyff in the same way that we've talked about, oh, like influencing, inspiring, whether it's a reaction to him or or not, he is kind of the, the, the next generation. Well, and in terms of the pressure that I was saying earlier about, you know, how difficult it was, for example, for Bobby Robson to follow, follow mm. Cruyff and how difficult it was for Van Gaal to follow Cruyff, I think we've already seen this. We saw it with Luis Enrique. I think we're seeing it with Ernesto Valverde. Yeah. You follow Guardiola and you're following this slightly idealised and slightly mythologised with time vision of, of, of a kind of an unattainable profession. Well, that's the thing, isn't it? They, they've done all right. Oh, no, exactly. Yeah. Well, that's what I mean. <laughs> Luis Enrique wins a treble in his first season, but it's yeah. not just about winning, is it? That's, yeah. that's the thing. With, with Cruyff, Barcelona created a footballing narrative to go with the social-political narrative, the cultural narrative they always had. They created a kind of a, a footballing... Um, Puritan, Puritanism. Well, that's the thing, and the danger of that, of that becoming like a kind of gospel, is if you go against that, you're like a heretic, Absolutely. and that's not the way that we do things, whether it's successful or not. Well, I think it was Pichi Alonso who said, you know, Cruyff is God, and the word of God cannot be hmm. con contradicted. Um, Alright, so we've spoken about Romario Koeman, Guardiola. I wanted to quickly mention Michael Laudrup as well, just oh. because we're, you know, we're all swooning. Yeah, just, I mean, just, just it's swooning beer. in every sense. <laughs> uh, he was a, he's still a handsome man. He's a uh, lovely man as well. He was also an absolutely bloody brilliant footballer. I'm sort of more familiar with his performances for, for Real Madrid. Mm. Well, and there's a nice kind of 12-month period where, as Sid writes in his book, Laudrup was on the right side of 5-0 victories for oh. both Barca and then a year later... 
exactly a year later. They yeah. win 5-0 with Barcelona, and then he goes to Real Madrid, wins 5-0 in Real Madrid in two Clásicos, and he's in the dressing room. And, and Angel Capa, who was a Real Madrid assistant coach at the time, tells a story that he, he's in the dressing room, everyone's celebrating, and Laudrup's just sitting there very quietly in the corner. And as he walks past him, kind of Laudrup looks at him and just says, I won 10-0. <laughs> Which I think is funny. My favourite Loudrop story is not that one though. My I favorite think you've told this one about the king. About the king. I've told this one before. I'll tell it anyway. Um, so Loudrop is at the end of his whatever it is, a year and a bit at Real Madrid. He decides he's going to go and he's eating in a restaurant one day and uh, and and he discovers that the king of Spain is sitting on the other table, Juan Carlos, and Juan Carlos comes over and Juan Carlos says to him, "So I hear you're leaving." And Laudrup says, yeah, yeah, I am. And he says, well, that's good. I can go back to being the only king in Madrid. <laughs> which, is, which is a good story, which you have told. Actually, feels quite fairly recently that you told that. I don't anyway, know. I'm it's a good one. I'm sorry repeating. if I have. Um, sorry, Phil. I was just going to say that the, the sad thing about Laudrup, in a way, is that you get the impression that Cruyff, whether it was because Cruyff saw a bit of himself in Laudrup or whatever, didn't give Laudrup the kind of the encouragement, the support that he needed. Of course, Laudrup was famously left out of the 94 European Cup final, the one that, mm. that Milan won. Uh, so comprehensively 4-0 yes um, it didn't end particularly well for 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 Laudrup at Barcelona is it coincidence that the season that he leaves Barcelona (laughs) don't win the league the following season and Real Madrid do not entirely coincidence no I think there's a series of elements one is the the impact of that lost final in 94 I think the other as I said before is the is the impact of a post World Cup season in which Stoichkov Romario the impact of Romario's own kind of rebellion the tensions that were already there I mean, you know, this split that we always talk about, the kind of the civil war, if you like, at Barcelona, which which in a way was kind of Cruyffists against Nunezists, for want of a better word, which has kind of been recreated even now, was already starting to build up. And and the day that Cruyff is sacked is is really quite quite brutal. And the players literally listening as as Cruyff and Joan Gaspar, the then vice president, go at each other uh, and really scream and shout at each other. And Cruyff sacked the next day. Mm. Okay, any other players that you'd like to uh, mention before Stoichkov. we t- talk about other things? T- tell us about Risto Stoichkov. I, just, I mean, Stoichkov's just completely crazy. Um, he still is. Yeah, he I still mean, is. He still I mean, is, yeah. and, and fans loved him for his craziness. They, and, and, you know, Cruyff always said that he wanted Stoichkov as much for his personality, maybe a Luis Suarez-style figure. You know, he wanted someone with Malaleche and that bad milk, that aggression on the pitch, the nastiness. Um, and, and my favourite bit was there was this story that, that, that the only thing that he had to do really to convince Stoichkov to come and it can't be that difficult to convince someone to come from from Bulgaria from behind the Iron Curtain still to come and play for Barcelona brilliant player but the the, the way to convince him was to get him a red sports car all all he wanted was a red sports car (laughs) according to the story and I asked Stoichkov this and he said yeah that's true and he said red uh, it was an Audi he said but it didn't matter it couldn't it didn't need to be an Audi just a red car any red car it had to be a red car and then he said I didn't have a license (laughs) fair enough was it, he was driving it though? Sure. I assume so. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, mean, I, th- I think to be fair to him, I think he probably meant he just didn't have a Spanish license. Oh, yeah. But he said, oh, "I didn't have a license." Okay, that's I mean, all right. we don't have Spanish licenses. <laughs> no, that's true. <laughs> don't mention that one here. <laughs> um, look, Stoichkov was the prototype mercurial, combative little Balkan playmaker. I mean, I really remember him. I guess our generation was a bit the World just Cup. past his best. Yeah, and then Euro 96. Even at Euro 96, yeah. he was past it, but he I scored a couple of brilliant goals. I, I saw him playing Leeds. I think he scored three goals in Euro 96. And there were a couple of bri- brilliant yeah. goals, I remember yeah. in particular, even though, as I say, that was when he was when he was past what his a best. Great, what a great player. And, and he he fell out very badly later on with Van Gaal, but he absolutely, surprise, surprise. He absolutely yeah. loved because Bobby he went Robson. and came back, didn't he? Yeah. Yeah, he went to, was it Palmer in between time? I think it might have been. Uh, and and he, he absolutely loved Bobby Robson, but hated Van Gaal. Is it worth, at this point, Addressing the kind of the the counter narrative about the dream team, the counter narrative being 
how good were they really and how lucky were they? Uh-huh. Well, because of course the story, obviously I think a lot of people know, but it's worth going through these. They won four league titles. Mm. Three of the four they won on the final day. And in all three cases... Against Deportivo La Coruña. Which we talked about when we did yeah. Super Deportivo, of course. In all three cases, it was basically handed to them yeah. by the other team somehow blowing it. Now, we, we're not going to go through Super Depor again because we did it the other day. But, of course, this comes to the damned island, the, the, the cursed island, the <laughs> Tenerife. Two seasons in a row, Real Madrid go to Tenerife on the final day of the season knowing that if they win they win the league and both times they were beaten. The first time they were beaten 3-2, which is an extraordinary... I mean, they, they, it was done. You know, they were 2-0 up, the league's theirs, and they lose 3-2. The second season, they go, and it's almost as if the first season mean they know they're going to lose because like, there's this kind of curse, there's this mental thing that says, we can't go here again, we're going to lose it again. And both times they hand the league to, to, Real Madrid, sorry, to Barcelona. There's a couple of reasons why this is significant. Obviously, one of the fundamental ones is that the Tenerife manager is Jorge Valdano, yeah. former player who then becomes their manager. And I remember him saying that he felt that he had to become Real Madrid's manager when they offered it to him because he owed them because he'd taken two <laughs> league titles off them. So they were somewhat lucky in winning three. By the way, of have you ever four. seen the goal in the first one? It is possibly the most stupid goal you will ever, ever which, see which in your goal? life. The winning goal. So, so, no, I think, it, I think it's the 2 2, but it might be the 3 2. Basically, Manolo Sanchez picks the ball up more or less on the halfway line, turns round and decides to deliver a back pass to Paco Bullion. From the halfway line, he's thumped this back pass. It's flying through the air. I think it's going wide, but Bullion scrambles across to try and get to it, reaches, because it's high in the air, this isn't on the floor, reaches it, saves it from going out for a corner, but basically saves it, pushes it backwards onto the goal line, and a guy called... Cherubio, Cherubino, or something like that, runs in and scores. It's one of the most stupid goals you could ever, ever wish to see. Which, which helped out the the dream team considerably. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. And and you know, and this was one of the things. Um, Tenerife were actually invited to play in the Trofeo Gamper, the kind of the preseason <laughs> Cheers, preseason guys. tournament. Thanks. Exactly. And there was always a suggestion that maybe they'd been on a little bit win bonus from Barcelona, which of course back then I think I suspect there's you know there's a reasonable chance they were because a lot of teams a lot of teams were. But Real Madrid blew it both times. Except that I mentioned this to Michel once, uh, and we'll talk about him when we do Quinta del Buitre, I'm sure, if we do Quinta del Buitre as one of our classic teams. And, and I remember him saying, yeah, but it's true we blew on the last day, and it's true that we completely cocked it up. But he said, in a way, it was a miracle that we kept up with that dream team. He said, because they were much, much better than us. Uh-huh. And he said, so it feels to me, he said, with time, he said, obviously, at the, at, in that moment, I didn't feel like this. He said, with time, it feels to me like we did something extraordinary, even reaching the final day with a chance of winning the league. Oh, well, there you go. If, it's, if it comes from Mitchell, who would, who would know, really, would Yes, you? yes, yeah. absolutely. So, an element of luck about three of those league titles, the European Cup that they won in 1992 at Wembley against Sampdoria, they only won it 1-0 after extra time, mm. the, the Koeman goal wins it. And then, of course, the other European Cup final they get to that we've touched on, they were spanked 4-0 by, by Milan. They get absolutely slaughtered. And there was always an accusation that Cruyff hadn't taken it seriously enough. Um, in fairness to Cruyff, in the pre-match press conference, he was saying... I'm worried about the fact that the environment around us isn't taking this seriously enough. Obviously, Barcelona just won a fourth league title in a row. That's the Deportivo league title, I think, the fourth one of the, mm. of the four. Um, and Barcelona's players felt like, you know, 
somehow, I mean, we can't, we keep getting away with this. Well, yeah, there is something like about us, there's something about us, we're just untouchable. Even, <laughs> even when we're bad, we're untouchable. And, and they got totally taken apart. That, that, that team, if I remember rightly in the final, the player that really kind of strode across that final was Marcel Desailly. Yeah. He was absolutely wonderful. Well, he, I think he scored the fourth goal, didn't he? I can't remember he, which he, one it was. I think yeah. it was the fourth. And also that Milan team, when you look at the players that weren't even playing, they were without um, Baresi, Costa Curta, there was no Van Basten, there was no Brian Laudrup, there was no Papa. They were missing about half exactly. the, the top players and they still absolutely demolished Barcelona, who were the favourites. A brief aside, uh, Costa Curta, it's, it's a, sounds like a, a, a Geordie supermarket, doesn't it? <laughs> Costa Curta? Costa Curta in Geordie? Like, yeah. huh? Anyway, that was terrible. But, Sorry, but despite all that, that, just ruined this whole thing. They, I mean, <laughs> they were still a great team. Of course they were a great oh, team. They of really course, were. Such an they absolutely team. were. But, but perhaps maybe team. their importance is, is actually something that you've... It's more... It's more sort of cultural, ideological, ideological. philosophical. Yes. It's, it's as, I mean, as the Guardiola quote that you mentioned earlier um, has it, it's as a, as a kind of a pioneer, as a groundbreaker, as, as something to follow, mm. something to create a pathway for, for others to follow along. And as I say, and it's been slightly exaggerated by all of us, I include myself, the, the kind of line of continuity, because that line of continuity is not quite as clear cut as it appears, mm. but it definitely gave them an identity that until then they hadn't had, although it is true that some of the players of the just the pre pre um, Cruyff era, kind of the '86 European Cup team and, and the team that won the league in '85, some of those players feel that their contribution to the modern Barcelona has been overlooked and shouldn't have been. With Terry, that team that with Terry Venables won the league and, and lost the European Cup final to uh, Stabil Crest. Mm. Okay. Well, there we go. That was the uh, that was the Barcelona dream team. Uh, we've been taking your uh, your suggestions. Obviously, quite a few people have suggested uh, doing the, uh, the the dream team. Quite a few people suggested uh, a Euro Depot. We have heeded those suggestions in our first two episodes of Classic Teams. Um, make sure you, you you tell us who you want us to do, uh, patrons. Amin said, "I'd like to put forward the Del Bosque era Real Madrid team uh, from the turn of the century for your Classic Teams series." I'm imagining pre Galactico or including Galactico. Well, maybe a little bit of both. Yeah, maybe. Uh, he says, I'm a Madridista, and while there are many things that happen at the club that baffle me, the sacking of Del Bosque is the one I really can't get my head around. Uh, Ian said, turn of the century Valencia, or Barca Dream Team. Next. Well, there you go, Ian. Good suggestions. And uh, Quaid says, I was wondering if you'd consider doing the 1979-1980 Real Madrid-Castilla team for your classic teams series. It sounds pretty niche, but of course that was a Real Madrid-Castilla yeah. team that got to the Copa del Rey final and were beaten 6-1 by Real Madrid, yeah. uh, which is something perhaps worth worth talking about because it, it was certainly uh, that feeds into that feeds into a little bit into the whole idea of the the Quintela Buitre and yes. the whole idea of that that sort of a that pre, young precursor, gen- yeah. kind of exactly that young generation of players coming through at Madrid in what was of course a uh, a fledgling democracy at the time. Yes, very, very, very interesting. There we go. All right, so we will have a think and uh, come up with uh, another classic team to talk about on our next episode. But as I said, make sure you, you tell us who you want us to uh, uh, to talk about. And you're we... more than welcome to ask for Oviedo, by the way. You, you are, you are, you will be rejected, but you can ask. <laughs> you can yes. ask. You may not be listened to. Thanks, guys. See you later. Bye. Cheerio. Bye.